First Thessalonians 3, first five verses. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that as we enter into your presence once again in prayer right now, that you have revealed to us that that is only possible through Christ, who bore our sin in his own body on the cross, absorbed your just wrath toward our sin, and paid our debt, purchased our entrance into a new and an eternal covenant where you are forever our Father. So we come into your presence as your children looking into your word this morning and believing that this is a very important means by which you speak to your gathered church for the purpose that we might understand you better first and foremost and understand our purpose in this world better so that we might um, leave this gathering displaying and reflecting your glory all over our world. And that's, that's our desire. So would you bless this Time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in this study, we've been talking a lot, especially recently, about Paul and, and Silas and Timothy's deep affection for this church in Thessalonica. We, we've talked recently, in particular, about their eager longing to go back and to see these people so that they might further invest in them. And the way in time that we've kind of ordered things as far as their interactions with this church body is that they, they go there for the first time, they preach the gospel, they spend some weeks there with the converts, and they're basically smuggled out when persecution heats up. And as they continue to preach the gospel and invest in people where, wherever they are, and that, that is what they do, they're smuggled to Berea where they preach the gospel formally in the synagogue and scripture tells us they open the scriptures daily with the people. So as they continue to preach the gospel and invest in people where they are, they also continue to long to return to Thessalonica and be with this young church. And I just want to um, pause there so that we might enter into that conflict for a minute. 
They long to be somewhere else, but they are fully invested where they are at all times. I hadn't put these pieces together before, but the full picture that is being painted is that they are removed from the city, but they want to go back and they try to go back again and again, and they're hindered, according to Paul last week, they're hindered by both people and Satan, and there not being much difference between those two people who stand in the way of the gospel going forth are doing the work of Satan, but in the process of being hindered by people and by Satan from being where they long to be, they remain fully invested where they are. So when they're in Berea, and longing to return to their spiritual children in Thessalonica, they're not idle. They're preaching and teaching and investing in people, and they're building a church in Berea. And when they're forced to leave Berea and move even further away from Thessalonica, where they deeply want to be, they become fully invested in Athens for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God there. Their eager longings to be back in Thessalonica still apparently hadn't diminished by the time they get to Corinth from which Paul wrote both of these letters because he's continuing in these letters to pour out affection and longing for them, but they continue to be fully in where they are at this time in Corinth. And I'm hoping that little rehearsal might be used by God to encourage you and all your, your plans and your longings and your dreams to become or to remain fully invested here. Where you are right now for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of God's glory here. To my young and eager church family with so much life ahead of you and dreams that you're pursuing. I just want to say, don't let your pursuit of your dreams and your deep affectionate longings make you idle here and now. With these guys, though, the point came where something had to give. Their longings to be back in Thessalonica were so strong that they decided it would be more helpful in order to satisfy their longings to some degree and serve the Thessalonians that the best solution was if their team split up. So, as far as we can tell, two stay in Athens, one return to Thessalonica. They concluded that it was better for that situation than if they continued to try in vain for all three of them to make it back. So, as our text reveals this morning, they decide while in Athens to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. The reason, perhaps it's not the best word for lack of ability to switch on the fly, the reason is revealed in verse 1. It says, therefore, when we could bear it, no longer, or no longer being able to contain ourselves, we sent Timothy. And, and get this, they didn't just send him, but they, he says they thought it good to send him. 
and for us to remain alone at Athens. So the picture is three men, desperate, passionate, bereaved spiritual parents trying and failing, trying and failing to get back to their spiritual children and becoming so desperate in their continual attempts and failures that they decide to split up in hope that one might make it back because they so desperately wanted to do two things. Both of those are revealed in verse 2. We sent Timothy to establish you, one, and to exhort you in your faith. Those two purposes are not, they're really not two different things. They're kind of like hand and glove. Establishing them being the glove and encouraging them being the hand that goes inside the glove. They, They sent Timothy back essentially to pastor these people on behalf of all three of them. And what that pastoring involved was establishing them in the faith, meaning setting their feet deeper in the concrete of the faith so that they might be able to continue to stand and not, as he expresses concern for here, be shaken in these sufferings. So establish them in the faith, setting their feet deeper in the concrete of the faith and encouraging them in the faith so that they might consider themselves to be blessed, actually blessed to suffer for Jesus' sake. Knowing that the gospel was being spread all over their region and the known world through what was happening to them. Establishing and strengthening is a perfect balance of theological development intellectually and emotional, spiritual actions and demeanors that somebody should display who wholeheartedly believes what they say they believe about God. So Timothy wasn't sent back to Thessalonica to simply make these people smarter in a way that was irrelevant to life and suffering. Nor was he sent to bypass spiritual depth in the urgency of the moment to somehow try to encourage them in their suffering outside of knowing God deeply. It's a great reminder of what our task is as pastors and what your task is as parents and as spouses and in all of your relationships and what our task is as a church in the process of discipleship with with anyone. To establish people's feet, to set people's feet deep in the thick concrete of the faith so that they're not shaken by error or by suffering and to encourage them in what they know so that what is on display through them in life proclaims to those watching that they are loved by a good and caring God who doesn't abandon His people in times of suffering, but rather draws them even nearer and fills their lives with grace and faith to endure, and not just endure, but to bear fruit 
And you've, you've been there. You know what I'm talking about. I would even say that in the situation that's just most near to Christ fellowship, Chris and I were there this past week visiting Ben and Raquel in the hospital. I left the hospital thinking that I would be going crazy if Madison was going through what Mackenzie is going through. But I think Chris would agree that God's grace was so evident that he has grounded Ben and Raquel in the gospel and drawn them near to himself in their suffering so that right when my thoughts went, I would be going crazy if that were Maddie or Piper instead of Kenzie, my next thought had to be, no, I might not, because Ben and Raquel aren't. God would draw me close in those hours for the display of his glory and goodness in Christ, just like he's done for them. And just like he was doing for the people in Thessalonica. But what I'm reminded of is God does that. We're going to see this in a couple of weeks because Paul actually uses one of these words in reference to something that God does. He establishes people's hearts. But I'm reminded here that he does that partly through people. In this case, Paul and Silas and Timothy displaying the words of Philippians 2 and esteeming the Thessalonians above themselves so much so that they split up their team and left themselves diminished in order to make the Thessalonians stronger. So God does the strengthening and the encouraging, but he does it in part to the degree that his people strive and sacrifice and invest and diminish themselves in effort to establish and strengthen each other. Understand how that works? So I'm, I'm partly saying this morning, be all in where you are right now and, and be this for each other. This is what Chris and I must be for you. And this is what you must be for each other. Those who set each other's feet deeper in the concrete of the faith and encourage each other that there's no better place to be than deep with God and near to God and therefore receptive of every means by which deep and near are designed by God to take place. so that others might see in his people a glorious picture of grace and reconciliation that ultimately is designed by God to lead them to Jesus on full display in all of his glory. So former enemies over whom furious wrath once hovered but over whom and in whom and surrounding whom now grace and kindness and love flows and sustains 
And to know that the sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing death of Jesus and the sin-killing, death-destroying, Satan-defeating resurrection of Jesus is the source and ground of this reconciliation and grace. And that would be a witness for Jesus that glorifies God. And I think ultimately that's what motivated Paul and Silas and Timothy to make this investment in these in these people. It was about God and his glory on display in Thessalonica. So verses one and two reiterate Paul, Silas and Timothy's eager longing to return. And their explanation as to why they sent Timothy and what they sent him to do. They sent him because they couldn't contain their longings for these brothers and sisters any longer. So they diminished themselves in order to serve them. And their goal in sending Timothy back was to continue to invest in their theological development and their joy in that theological development so that Christ was on display through them in their sufferings. Skip verses 3 and 4 for now, because we're going to end there. And there's a reason that hopefully will make sense by the end. And just look look at verse 5. Because it's it's just one more reiteration of of eager longing on on their behalf for this church. But this this time in verse 5, it's personal with Paul. So like he did in our text last week, he expresses his thoughts on behalf of the team. But then he steps back for a minute and gets personal and just bears his, his heart for his readers. And, and just notice the parallel with verse 5 and verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, again. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. And now in verse 5 he says, Therefore, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. If, if we put these two Together, we learn that they sent Timothy to serve as a pastor to these brothers and sisters so that he might set their feet deeper in the concrete of the faith and encourage them to consider themselves blessed to suffer for Jesus' sake. But Paul's personal concern is about their faith. And if that seems too vague for you, he explains what he means by that as we keep reading. He says, I I sent to learn about the state of your faith for fear that somehow the tempter has tempted you and our labor would be in vain. He's concerned that what they themselves were experiencing, which he expressed last week as Satan's opposition, was what the Thessalonians might be experiencing as, as well. And that effect of Satan's opposition might have among them would actually be to the subverting of their faith. So if I can put it simply, he's concerned that the Thessalonians being young in the faith, that their faith might not be strong enough to withstand the strength of the attack or discern the subtlety of the attack of the enemy which is one of the reasons they sent Timothy back to set their feet deeper in the faith so that they might not be shaken when the enemy attacks. I, I, I do, I should say, 
um, that I do think there was a difference in the nature of the attacks in reference to Paul and Silas and Timothy from the Thessalonians. He, he describes theirs last week as Satan standing in their way through human, human persecutors who drove them further away from Thessalonica in their attack. So in reference to Paul and Silas and Timothy, it's not as much an attack on them to destroy their faith as much as stand in the way of gospel proclamation and advancement. But in reference to the Thessalonians, the one who was called Satan in reference to Paul and Silas and Timothy is referred to here as the tempter. And I think there's significance to that distinction. Same person, but significance in the distinction. Satan meaning enemy or adversary in reference to his efforts to stand in the way of the gospel going forward. But here, the tempter referring to Satan's mischievous intent to lure believers away from the faith. And Paul's expressing this as his fear. And it's not baseless because Paul knew this all too well. As he had been himself an instrument of Satan to serve this very purpose among young and new believers early on in Jerusalem and in the regions surrounding. So Paul knows full well what Satan is up to and he doesn't just dismiss it because God is stronger but he feels an increasing sickness and fear and longing in himself for this church based upon it, which reached a boiling point in their cooperative decision to send Timothy back. And when he says at the end of our passage, and for fear that our labor would be in vain, we, we, we're going to be led astray by that if we don't reflect on last week. The the wrong way to read that is we are afraid that our investment in you would be, it would just been a waste of time. That somehow it would be a waste of time for them to to spend the time that they did in in Thessalonica in some kind of a self-centered waste of time sense. Reflecting on last week, we learned when Paul said, you are our hope and joy and crown of boasting in the presence of Jesus at his coming, that his his saying was perfectly consistent with, God forbid that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's presenting of the Thessalonians to Jesus as specimens of his finished work and as evidences of Jesus' finished work in himself was his boasting in the cross. And his fear that their labor would be in vain in the end isn't some twisted anger in the Thessalonians that somehow they might come to have wasted his time with them. His fear is that what he hoped would serve as a means of magnifying Jesus before all in his presence at his coming would not in the end serve that purpose. So he's concerned 
that the subverting of their faith would not only confuse or endanger their standing before God, but also remove an opportunity for boasting in the finished work of Jesus. As quickly as word was spreading throughout the region of their conversion and of their standing strong in the faith despite suffering, so would be the news of their fall should the tempter break through and have his way. And I deeply appreciate, and I hope that you deeply appreciate Paul's fear of this in light of his view of God's sovereign rule over all things. His fear of Satan's power to deceive and subvert inflamed his passion to invest in God's people. Inflamed it. And I hope this might reorient the way that we look at Christians whom we perceive to be weak or struggling. Take this for what it's worth. I've just got to admit to you that I I come from a strand of Christianity where it is never said like this, but the mentality is only the strongest survive. And, I, and while I would seriously question the accuracy of the assessment of what strength looks like in that movement. The point is, weak, struggling, embattled Christians just disappear. They come and go. At times, even members of churches that have been a part of with almost no pursuit and almost no evidence of eager longing from anyone for messy people. Their baggage. And you don't notice or care if they just disappear. In Christ's fellowship, I would say that we are sinning against God, and we're sinning against each other, if that is ever our mindset. May our thinking be shaped by these threatening images of our enemy. He is Satan. And as our enemy, he stands in the way of the gospel going forth from here. And as the tempter, he pursues the very people. It is so easy to just avoid or say good riddance to when they leave our church or drift away or just disappear. But what this letter pushes us toward is self-diminishing investment. Eager, messy, relentless pursuit. Based upon our confidence that God is sovereign in and over all, including Satan and his opposition to the gospel and his subtle deception and subversion of the faith of God's people. So I want us to reflect a deep trust that God is jealous for the glory of his son in those whom he has chosen. So Satan's opposition or subversion should ultimately serve to fuel 
the same eager longings in us as it did in them. So think of a messy, drifting, weak Christian in your life and pursue them as God's means of pursuing them. Knowing that the enemy and his people are hot on their trail. If we could do our five verses this morning as three small sections. The first and last of those sections being very similar. A corporate and a personal expression of longing. Combined now back in verses 3 and 4 with an explanation concerning why they've taken the actions they have so that sandwiched in between these two expressions we find a, a statement that ties it all together and actually serves as the greater point of the passage. I think that's the way we're supposed to look at our passage. Verses 1 and 2. When we could bear it no longer, we sent Timothy. Verse 5, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. And verses 3 and 4, right in the middle, grounding both verses 1 and 2 and verse 5 in its truth. And here's the, the sentence that summarizes it all. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. Verse 4, I would say, is a gentle reminder that this was not news to them. Paul and Silas and Timothy had prepared them for this in their time with them. So verse 4, for when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it's come to pass and just as you know. This is somewhat crazy because if you keep it in this context, they were they're with them like three weeks. Maybe a few weeks longer if the three weeks that are mentioned in Acts 17 weren't consecutive, but they weren't with them long. Meaning that at the front end of their gospel presentation in Thessalonica was the reality of suffering. Suffering not being something some Christians <laughs> might face. So leave off talking about it until it happens because it might scare them away if it's front-ended. But suffering rather being something that all Christians will face. So that it must be a front-end gospel category so that what Jesus describes in the parable of the sower doesn't happen which is, I think, what Paul fears might happen for these people. So let me remind you of the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. The sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, but immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. 
Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. And when Jesus himself grants them ears to hear in his explanation a couple of verses later. This is what he says about the seed that falls on stony ground. And when you compare it with what Paul is expressing here is his fear for these people, it just seems to fit. He says regarding the seed that falls on stony ground, as for what was sown on rocky ground, This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So in our passage, they're sending Timothy back out of fear that this might happen. And so that he might do what this passage says, they lack deep roots, feet set deep in the concrete of the faith. And the specific teaching that Paul says, they taught them, but sent Timothy back to reiterate to them, that would serve the purpose of rooting them deeper and setting their feet firmer, is the truth that God is in and over the suffering of his people. And this verse actually says, he has destined his people for this. And he destines his people for this in order to shower his goodness and grace in Christ upon them and in so doing reveal his glory and draw others out of the kingdom of darkness and into his kingdom of light which is why persecution and suffering in all of scripture is described as universal for God's people All who will live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution because God wishes for the sufferings and victory of his son to be on full display everywhere his people are by tending to their need in their sufferings. All for Jesus' sake. Listen to a few statements on this passage by some others who uh, I read throughout the week. Just I want to crunch a few statements from Calvin down into, into one. So there's a bunch of dot, dot, dots between these, but it's all the same thought. He says, Though all would gladly exempt themselves from the necessity of bearing the cross, Paul teaches that bearing the cross is inseparable from our being Christians. Another writer, if it uh, matters to you, Ernest Best, says this. This is 
This was stunning. He says, Paul here is not thinking of a period of persecution which will pass and the church return to normality. Normality is persecution. Normality for the church is suffering. And I would like to follow up on that and actually close by saying normality for the church is persecution and suffering because the head of the church suffered and was persecuted to the death. So that our sufferings and persecutions and the sufferings and persecutions of the church around the world are, as Scripture tells us, actually an extension of the sufferings and persecutions of Jesus. But just as normality for the church is persecution and suffering, so God has ordained normality for the suffering church to enter into its own sufferings and persecutions by diminishing itself always in pursuit of its suffering members in hope to be a means of strength and encouragement so that rather than God's glory somehow, if it were possible, being obscured by what seems to be in a particular battle, a victorious devil. God has ordained that normality for the church in their persecution and in their suffering would be God's glory on display in Christ's victory in the war. In Christ's fellowship, that demands of us constant self-diminishment. Relentless pursuit. Sacrificial investment. And the payoff coming as the world sees Now, in Christians standing firm in the concrete of the faith and living as if in their sufferings there could be no better life. And Jesus being on display and magnified in that and the payoff coming also in the end. When Jesus is boasted in and among And over again and again and again. As embattled Christians make it safely home into his presence. And are joined forever to their victorious king. And today counts. Today counts immensely in that grand scope. So Christ Fellowship, let's not waste it.
Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for these men just bearing their hearts, expressing deep affection again in our in our text today. And thank you that self-diminishment is on display in them as an example to us. Thank you that that being so contrary to human Nature points us to Christ dying to reconcile sinners to Almighty God. So that the rest of life might be this God and His glory on display in reconciled sinners. Father, would you create in us a Willingness by your spirit for self-diminishment, relentless pursuit, sacrificial, messy investment in this um, very real, very threatening battle with our enemy. Thank you that you've overcome the world, Jesus. Thank you that you've brought us into your victory. So may your victory be on full display in us and through us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.